Well, let's turn to our uh, scripture reading for our sermon this morning. Uh, We're going to be together in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 6 through 15. We just finished up our series in October on the five solas of the Reformation. And this little gap we have between the end of October and the beginning of Advent, which will be the first Sunday in December this year, we're just doing a a quick little follow-up on the Reformation. We talked a lot about the Protestant Reformation in October, but what what we started doing last week and what we're going to keep doing this week is we started looking at biblical examples of Reformation. So last week was an Old Testament Reformation. This week, a New Testament Reformation. And to see that, we're going to turn together to Hebrews chapter 9, and we're going to read together verses 6 through 15. This is God's holy word for us, his people this morning. Hebrews 9, 6 to 15. God's word says this. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people." By this the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened, as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. When Christ, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. This is God's holy word for us this morning. Let's ask him to bless our time in his word. May the unfolding of your word this morning give us light, O God, that we may be instructed and reformed by your wisdom and conformed more into the image of your Son. 
Give us eyes to see and ears to hear, we pray. You be our teacher. Help me get out of the way and let your word do all the talking. Speak now, we pray, and change us by your truth. And write it on our hearts so that we can go from this place full of faith, full of love for Christ, and eager to obey him in all we do. And we'll give you the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Many of you know I went to college at Liberty University. And I was there right at the end of Dr. Falwell's life, Jerry Falwell Sr. We won't talk about Jerry Jr. Jerry Falwell Sr., the founder of the university, founder of Thomas Road Baptist Church there in Lynchburg. And I was a sophomore during exam week when Dr. Falwell passed away. But I was there at the end of his life, and we had chapel. We called it convocation or convo, and it was required three days a week, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, for, for an hour. And everybody had to go if you lived on campus. So we moved off campus as quickly as we, as we could. Uh, but if you're on campus, you had to be there where you get a write-up if you don't go. And Dr. Falwell always preached Wednesday convocation because it was on TV, and he wanted to be on TV. Dr. Falwell, at this point in his life, his sermons were much more anecdotal. He once told us about how he remembered when they invented the ballpoint pen. I mean, just like, what is, what sermon, what are you talking about? Well, in uh, one of these chapel services, uh, he told a very interesting story that I haven't forgot. Uh, Jerry Falwell was interviewed by a large church with a huge staff to be their new pastor. Now, Dr. Falwell had no real intention of ever taking the call to this church, but they so badly wanted him to be their pastor. And so he decided just to just go give them an interview so they'll leave him alone, basically. But he wanted it to be a real interview, so he went in. And he, as he tells the story, the interview is going fantastic. They're loving all of his answers to all of their questions until they asked him this question. They asked him, Dr. Falwell, what is the first thing you would do as our new pastor? And Falwell's answer was this, I would immediately fire you and the entire staff. <laughs> and I would handpick my own team. Because if I'm pastoring this church, it's going to run my way, not yours. Wow. They immediately rescinded their offer. <laughs> Thanked him for his time and said, please go back to Lynchburg. We're not interested. As you can imagine. Dr. Falwell had a determined and demanding leadership style. Uh, when he was in the room, there was no question who was in charge and who was calling the shots. His first action as new pastor of that church <clears throat> would have been a calculated move to establish his drive and his dominance. If you wanted him to pastor the church, you better be prepared for him to shake things up completely. He knew what worked and what didn't. That's why they wanted him to pastor there. He knew what worked and what didn't. He knew how to lead and grow a large, fruitful church. 
So on day one, he said, the old way of doing things was over. The church is now under new management, and the new, better way of doing things, his way of doing things, is here to stay, so get used to it. (laughs) Well, in our passage this morning, we see a similar pattern among the people of God in the first century. The old way of doing things established under Moses was still in operation. Moses was still calling the shots. The people of God at this time had been praying to God and calling out for the Messiah to finally come and rescue them. And then one day God answered their prayer and they weren't too happy about it. (laughs) You see, all of a sudden... The Messiah, Jesus, arrives. He shows up, and the first thing he does is fire everyone, handpick his own team, and start a reformation. The people of God were now under new management, Jesus' management, and the new, better way of doing things was here to stay. The New Testament reformation had begun. As I said last week, we looked at an Old Testament reformation led by King Josiah. But I wonder if you guys knew that there is also a reformation in the New Testament. Did you notice that in verse 10 of our passage? At the very end, it says, These regulations for the body were imposed until the time of reformation. Reformation is a Bible word. And the very next verse pivots to when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come. The author of Hebrews interprets the coming of Jesus and the things Jesus accomplished as the great messianic reformation of first century Judaism. So that Christianity begins inside Judaism as this Reformation Judaism, Christian Judaism that eventually splits away from non-Christian Judaism and it eventually develops into what we see today, Judaism as a non-Christian religion and then Christianity. But it starts with a Reformation moment. It starts with a Messianic Reformation movement of Jesus. And today, I want us to look at Jesus' reformation. I want us to see the old way of doing things as the people of God. The amazing reforms that Jesus made when he arrived. And the new way of doing things that he established forever. And as we listen to the scriptures this morning and consider these things, we learn that because Jesus inaugurated a new age for us through his reformation, we must draw near to God with confidence in nothing else but the finished work of Christ. That's where we're going this morning. And so let's begin by looking at the old way of doing things. And this is described for us in our text in verses 6 through 10. Now I'm calling this... The old economy. The old economy. And that word economy, don't let it throw you off. It comes from a Greek word. It's actually a compound word in the original Greek text. And it basically means house law. 
the law of the house, or we could translate it the house rules. It refers to the way things operate or the way things have been set up to function. The economy of something is the established arrangement. And there's our key word. It's the established arrangement for how things operate. Now, we usually you know, think of economy as a word that refers to the arrangement of how the financial sector works, about markets and prices and goods and services and means of production and distribution and consumption, you know, buying and selling stuff. But economy can be used in a more general way to refer to any established arrangement. So at your house, the way things run in your home, that's the economy of your home. And they used to teach this in school, right? Home economics. That wasn't just about, you know, how the market system works and open trade, right? You didn't learn about that stuff in home economics. You just learned about how things run in a home. You know, and, you, and we all have this. It could be very organized or very messy, depending on your personality and how, you know, what your kids are like or whatever. Okay, so it's just that stuff about, you know, who does what and who does it when. Who takes the garbage out, you know, when it's, you know, who takes the cans to the road for garbage pickup? Who does the dishes on weeknights? Who's responsible for the grocery list? Who manages the budget? Who vacuums? It's just the arrangement you have. For how your home runs. That's the economy of your home. Right? The price system and buying and selling and all that. That's the economy for our money and our goods and services in our country. So that's what economics refers to. It's an arrangement. An established arrangement. And I'm using the word economy based on verse 9 in our, in our verse. Where it says in verse 9, according to this arrangement. There's our word, Arrangement. Now, the word arrangement isn't actually in the original Greek text, but it captures the idea being conveyed accurately. This is the old economy that I'm talking about, the arrangement established by God through Moses in the Old Testament. Now, what is this old economy? Notice that verse 6, notice that verse 6 begins... These preparations having thus been made. These preparations having thus been made. We're picking it up in the middle of a thought. Okay, these preparations points us back to what the author just said in verses 1 through 5. Look back up to, at verse 1. It says, Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. So this is what we're talking about. The regulations under the first covenant or the Old Testament, the old covenant under Moses. Regulations for worship and for holiness. The old economy refers to Old Testament worship, which was conducted through the sacrificial system established in the book of Leviticus. Verse 1 again. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. We're talking about the tabernacle. We're talking about the temple. We're talking about the place where the priests did their sacrificial service. These are the preparations that are, that are made. And he describes them in detail in verses 2 through 5. 
So what he's talking about is the regular system of sacrificial offerings that was administered by the priests of those those days. And in charge of it all, the, the person at the head of this economy was the high priest. And all these regulations were being conducted in what the text calls the first section of the tabernacle. It divides it up into these two sections, a holy place, the first section, and then a most holy place, or the holy of holies, we sometimes call it, which it calls here the second section. Look at verses 2 through 3. It says, for a tent, a tabernacle was prepared. The first section, in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence, it is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain, the veil, behind that curtain, that veil, was a second section called the most holy place. And he describes what was in it in verses 4 and 5. Now look at verse 7. Verse 7 says, But into the second section only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. So what's he talking about? He's talking specifically with about the regular day after day sacrificial offerings and gifts and sacrifices that take place in that first section, the holy place. And verse 7 says, into that second section, only the high priest goes, and he just goes one time a year, and he goes in there with blood for his sins and for the sins of the people. Now that's the high holy day of the Old Testament, the highest holy day of the Old Testament called the Day of Atonement. And that is described in Leviticus chapter 16. And that ritual, the Day of Atonement ritual, took, takes place in the second section. Year after year after year, the priests repeated this same process. Daily sacrifices in the second section. Yearly Day of Atonement in the second section. And then you start it over. And every year since Moses first got word to do this in Leviticus, way back when, for generations, for centuries, year after year, day after day, this same process is repeated. And the author in our text draws a conclusion from this in verse 8. In the beginning of verse 9, look at the conclusion he draws. He says, By this the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. What's going on here? The author's point is this. Through this arrangement, this old economy, the Holy Spirit is trying to tell us something. When God put this in place and inspired the book of Leviticus and those words are on the page and this system is in operation, the Holy Spirit is trying to tell us something, indicate something to us. God is trying to show us something through this system. God is telling us something about what the text calls this present age. Now, in Jewish theology at the time and in Jewish theology today, this is a technical term, the present age or this age. 
In Hebrew, the olam hazeh, this age, what Paul calls the present evil age. It's this fallen age that we're in before the age to come. The olam haba, the coming age in Hebrew. The age of the Messiah, the age of the kingdom, the future, eternal, glorious day coming. This age and the age to come. This age, the age to come. And the author is using this piece of theology to say the Holy Spirit, God himself, is trying to tell us something about this age through this sacrificial system. Now, John MacArthur points out that the word symbol in our, in our passage is the same Greek word that we translate as parable. Jesus told symbols or parables. And this says that the sacrificial system is a parable. It's a symbol. MacArthur observes that the Levitical sacrificial system was a parable. It was an object lesson set up by God to reveal something about the present age. And what is it meant to reveal? It's meant to reveal that as long as the old economy is in operation, we do not, we do not have full direct access to God. Something's blocking our path to God. The way into the second section, through the veil, past that inner curtain, into the Holy of Holies, the way into the presence of God is barred from us as long as the first section remains. Which means we still have to go through the continuous repetition of the same old sacrifices to deal with those same old sins year after year after year. Those sacrifices never actually get us through the first section, through the curtain, into the presence of God. Only the high priest goes in there, and he just goes once a year, and he doesn't dare go in there without a sacrifice for his own sins and for the sins of the people. And this keeps getting repeated. Nothing ever changes. We're on this treadmill. Now, God set this system up. It's not a bad system. It's just not able to get us through to God directly. We always have to stay outside and then send in our animal into the first section. And the priest offers the sacrifice. And then once a year, the high priest gets to go in the other section. But we're always outside. We never actually get to come in as long as that first section is standing, as long as those sacrifices still keep getting repeated year after year. This is the old economy. And the author explains this point in verses 9 and 10. Look what he says. After he says, which is symbolic for the present age, he says, according to this arrangement, or accordingly, gifts and sacrifices are offered, listen to this, that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. But, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. Notice two things about these two verses. First, notice this. These sacrifices cannot perfect the conscience. 
The old economy dealt only with external ritual purity. It could not deal with the stain of sin on the conscience. This old economy was never equipped to cleanse the conscience of sin. And in fact, it did exactly the opposite. In chapter 10, the author says this, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, there's that parable nature of the, of the old system. Since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, in chapter 10, verse 1, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. They can't do it. And then he says, otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. Right? If these sacrifices took away my sin, I wouldn't have to keep offering them. <laughs> if they perfected my conscience and really wiped out my sin, why do I have to keep coming back and offering them again and again and again? Why does that priest still have to go in there on the Day of Atonement and do this thing? If these sacrifices really did perfect our conscience and take away our sins on the inside, not just make us ritually clean on the outside. Then Chapter 10, verse 3, but in these sacrifices, he says, there is a reminder of sins every year. Every time I have to come back into this tabernacle and offer this sacrifice or do the Day of Atonement thing every year, all this does is remind me that I'm just going to have to do it again next year. <laughs> it just reminds me that I'm still a sinner and I'm still going to have to keep doing this treadmill of sacrifices and 10 verse 4 says, It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. You bet it is. Verse 11 of chapter 10, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. That's the first thing to notice from from these two verses in chapter 9, verses 9 and 10. The sacrifices cannot perfect the conscience, but then the second thing to notice is that this arrangement was never meant to be permanent. It was only meant to function until the time of reformation. That's what verse 10 says. These regulations were imposed until the time of Reformation. So God set it up as an object lesson about holiness and sin and sacrifice and atonement. It was there to point us to greater realities, but it could not deliver those realities on its own. Those realities were waiting for the coming of the Messiah. And this takes us to our second point this morning, to the changes, the reforms that Jesus made when he arrived as Israel's Messiah. And this is described in verses 11 to 14. When Jesus showed up, the people of God came under new management. Jesus makes the transition from the present age to the age to come. His coming shifts us from this present age into the age 
to come. And the age to come has two phases, an already phase and a not yet phase. Then the age to come, the new age of the Messiah, it's inaugurated, it's started, it's functioning, it's here, but it's not fully and finally here. That's awaiting the second coming. So the new age has two stages. It's a two-stage new age. First coming, second coming of Christ. Here we deal just with that first coming, that initial reformation that Jesus made. And when Jesus arrives, he shakes up everything with his reformation. That's the point of the beginning of verse 11 in our text. But when Christ appeared... As a high priest, there was already a high priest. (laughs) He was already doing his job in the tabernacle. But Christ appeared as the new high priest. A priest of the good things that have come. That's the new age. That's the new age. Jesus immediately takes over as the new high priest when he shows up. The old priest, he's fired. (laughs) His job is over. And just like Falwell coming into a new Baptist church and taking over, Jesus fires the entire priesthood. You guys, you priests, we don't need you anymore. (laughs) You're done. Relieved. You're finished. No more need for this high priest. No more need for these other priests. He immediately dismisses them. And what he does is he brings that old economy, the sacrificial system, he brings it to an end. That's a huge reform to make. From Moses to Jesus, sacrificial system, every day, every year, nonstop, Jesus shows up and says, the time of reformation has come. The sacrificial system has served its purpose, and now it is time to end as God ordained it. And Jesus brought that old economy to an end, not by abolishing the need for a sacrifice and abolishing the need for atonement. He doesn't get rid of that need. He fulfills that need. He meets that need perfectly forever. Look at verses 11 and 12. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, here's what he did. Then through the greater and more perfect tent or tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. Jesus entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Jesus, as the new high priest, did not go into the earthly holy of holies in the temple. Jesus offered his sacrifice on the cross and he went to heaven into the actual holy of holies, God's heavenly dwelling, and presented his sacrifice there. Not in the copy of the heavenly dwelling place of God on earth in the temple or tabernacle. He went to the real thing the real holy of holies. That's where Jesus entered. He went into a holy of holies not made with hands, not of this creation, into God's own presence and presented his sacrifice before the Father directly. That's what we're talking about, direct access to God. Jesus has it. And he went straight to God and offered his sacrifice. And what was the sacrifice? 
The blood of bulls and goats like the earthly tabernacle required? No. He presented his own blood. The blood of the cross. He showed his father the nail prints in his hands. And he showed his father the wound in his side and the holes in his feet. And he said, look. This is the sacrifice. Here is the blood of atonement. And he presented that to the Father. You see, Jesus was not just the priest who made the offering of the sacrifice. He was the victim of the sacrifice. He offered himself. He's the high priest and he's the lamb. He offers himself by sacrificing himself in his own death upon the cross offering himself directly in the Holy of Holies as the atoning sacrifice for your sins. That's new. <laughs> That's a reformation. The earthly priests couldn't do that, and it wouldn't matter if they did, because they had to go in the holy place, the Holy of Holies, with a sacrifice for their own sins, because they were sinners too, not Jesus. Jesus didn't need to offer any sacrifice for his own sin. He was the pure, spotless Lamb of God, and he went straight into God's presence and offered his sacrifice. His blood did what the blood of animal sacrifices never could. It secured your eternal redemption, the eternal atonement, the permanent forgiveness and cleansing of all your sins. Unlike that high priest who went in year after year, verse 12 says, he entered once for all. And that's why he could say on the cross, it's finished. It's finished. And if this is true, Christian, then no other sacrifice is ever needed again to atone for our sins. That's why the sacrificial system is done away with. Not because it was bad and stupid and earthly and useless. No. God put it there for a purpose. To be a parable. To point us to Christ. To point Old Testament Israelites and Jews to Jesus. To teach us something about our sin and the holiness of God and the need for atonement. And to point us to the one who would finally come and fulfill that need. So that the parable is no more. And the reality is here. That's what Jesus brought. And when the reality shows up, you don't need the shadow anymore. You don't need the parable anymore. You have the real thing. His one sacrifice, his single offering on the cross has perfectly covered all your sins forever. Look at verses 13 and 14 of the text. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer, all these rituals in the Old Covenant in Leviticus, if those things sanctify for the purification of the flesh, if those things really do make us ritually clean in God's sight in an outward external way, then verse 14, how much more? Will the blood of Christ, the Messiah, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience on the inside from dead works, our sins, to serve the living God. The old economy could never purify the conscience. 
Every year, these same old sacrifices were a constant reminder of sin, but with the sacrifice of Christ, the conscience has been purified, cleansed of all sin, so that we can serve and worship the living God directly when we draw near in the name of our great high priest, Jesus Christ. He gives us access to God that's unbrokered by this earthly sacrificial system. The author makes this point so clearly for us in our, later in our pas- later in the chapter 9 of our, of our passage here, verses 23 to 26. It says, Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, so the earthly tabernacle, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters the holy places every year with the blood not his own. For then Jesus would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And after the work of Jesus as the high priest, the old economy was completely reformed. Jesus' New Testament reformation brought the old to an end, and it introduced the new economy. This new economy is established under the new covenant. Look at the last verse in our text, verse 15. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. The new covenant replaces the old covenant when Jesus shows up, and thus the new economy replaces the old economy. Jesus mediates this new covenant And he runs this new economy as our great high priest. By his death, all your transgressions are covered and forgiven. You, Christian, now stand to receive your eternal inheritance, which is direct fellowship with God face to glorious face forever. That's your gift That's your inheritance. That's what will satisfy you forever. That's where you're going to receive your eternal inheritance purchased for you by the blood of your Savior. As verse 14 says, your conscience has been purified and perfected so that you can serve God. And that word serve in our verse, in our passage, it means worship. As in worship service. The new economy is a new way to worship, a new way to be the people of God, a new way to serve God on the basis of the finished work of Christ. 
And at the center of this new worship is the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. I want you to think about this point. Those old sacrifices were a constant reminder of sin, that our sins have not really been taken care of. But in the Lord's Supper, Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. Do this as a reminder of me. Communion is our reminder that His perfect sacrifice has fully and finally atoned for all our sins. When we have communion, we are not re-offering Jesus to God as though like that high priest who needs to offer the same sacrifices week after week and month after month. We're not re-offering the sacrifice of Christ to God to try and get Get it to work this time. No, we are simply doing it as the memorial, the commemoration of the victory he accomplished. It is not a, re- a, a repeated sacrifice of Christ. It is our sacrifice of thanksgiving, which is what the, the old word sounds like a Catholic word, Eucharist. It's not a Catholic word. It's a Bible word, and it just means thanksgiving, a thank offering to God. It's a, Eucharist is a beautiful Bible word. It's our sacrifice of thanksgiving to God, remembering, resting in, and rejoicing in the finished work of Christ. The sacrificial system is over. Now we just have the Lord's Supper that points us back constantly to the finished work of Christ. Just like that sacrificial system pointed us forward to the coming work of Christ, now this sacrament points us back to the victory that Christ accomplished. Since Jesus has inaugurated a new age, Christian, in a new economy, under a new covenant, for us, through his New Testament reformation, you and I must draw near to God with confidence in nothing else but the finished work of Christ. This is how we are to serve the living God in this new and living way. We must hold fast our confession of faith and hope in Christ as our great high priest and look to no other. We must come to his mercy seat, the real mercy seat in heaven where Jesus presented his blood before the Father. Come to his seat of mercy, his throne of grace, and look to him for all grace and all help for all your needs both for this age and for eternity. In all that you do and in all that you endure, Christian, in your life, never take your eyes off of Jesus. Never look away from his cross. Never trust in any other sacrifice to cover all your sins because Jesus paid it all. He opened the way to God. You have an eternal inheritance in the heavenly holy of holies kept for you and guaranteed to you by the blood of your Savior. So, oh, let us draw near to God and worship and serve Him with all confidence, with a clean, forgiven conscience. This is the power of the cross. This is the New Testament Reformation. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you that you sent Jesus to do for us what only he could do to bring about this great reformation, to bring it about that we don't have to be blocked from having reconciled fellowship with you, that he has suffered the, un, the just one in behalf of the unjust many to bring us to God, to reconcile us to our heavenly Father, to purchase for us our eternal redemption, to guarantee our eternal inheritance. Thank you that he has fulfilled the great promises and pointers and parables of the old covenant, that old economy. We thank you that we have in the Lord's Supper a reminder that our salvation has been perfectly purchased for us. Help us never to look to any other but to Christ, to trust only in his blood, to come only to his mercy seat, and to seek our salvation in none other. So that in whatever we do in our Christian lives, whatever we have to endure or experience, we will do it trusting in Christ and the power of his cross. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.